Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Elizabeth McNulty, and today I'm joined by Erica Slater, Liz Linovy, and Mary Simon. So our topic today is something that I think people either love or hate, and I'm pretty sure most people really, really dislike it, and that is dreaded written discovery. So we're going to talk about some strategies we use when drafting discovery and then how we go about making sure that we get all the information and documents that we are entitled to during this process. And since everyone hates it, I think pretty much universally, it's something that I think young lawyers are heavily involved in because more experienced lawyers just don't want to deal with it. And from experience, I know it can be a particularly contentious part of litigation. So I'm sure we'll also hear some good war stories. So first, I want to start by giving a basic explanation of what discovery is for all of our non-lawyer listeners. And discovery is basically the formal process of exchanging information between the parties about potential witnesses and evidence. It can include requests for production, which is to get documents, interrogatories, which are to get answers to questions, and then requests for admission, which get the other party to admit certain facts in the case. Different lawyers have different strategies that they use when drafting discovery. And I think that it can kind of go one of two ways, which is kind of like a bare bones where you're just trying to get the basics and you can collect other information through different ways, like taking depositions of witnesses and uh, corporate representatives, or other lawyers might choose to kind of swing for the fences and try to get anything and everything that can possibly get their hands on. Erica, I wanna know what your main objective is when serving written discovery. Well, my main objective is not to roll my eyes when I get the objections back. <laughs> that, that is what I'm really trying to work towards. <laughs> I've heard a couple different theories on written discovery. I think it depends on the case and knowing your opposing counsel and what to expect from them, and quite frankly, knowing their reputation. My goal with serving written discovery in any case that we file is actually to serve it as fast as possible. Because that's really the next step after filing the lawsuit, getting the answers, and or dealing with any responsive motions that come up. So getting them out as fast as possible at the beginning of my case is really has really served me well. Also, as far as kind of the theories behind discovery, I've talked to some attorneys at our firm who like literally throw their hands up and they're like, I get nothing. It's useless. Like, I have to get everything through depositions and um, serving subpoenas with those depositions and serving requests for admissions and things like that. We deal so often with just these sweeping objections to discovery questions, and really it should be a good faith back and forth exchanging information. It's always so frustrating when you get back a set of what you think is pretty innocuous or, you know, standard initial discovery with a bunch of objections. So I think that it's important to exchange the initial information up front. And that, you know, that's a standard for both sides. I don't object a lot in discovery. I object to things that are actually objectionable, to broad sweeping things. You're not entitled to, you know, my client's personal text messages to their aunt about how they feel about their injury. (laughs) Just like I'm not entitled to that between your client and their significant other. You know, we see requests and things like that that 
are objectionable and, and you got to set a boundary somewhere. The theory I take is that it's much better to give the other side what they're owed. Don't try to hold the hide the ball on facts that you need to exchange in litigation and are always eventually going to be exchanged because that slows things down and doesn't serve your clients well. And I actually believe that after working both plaintiff and defense, I think a lot of attorneys take the view that hiding the ball or trying to keep back a damning document that they eventually will have to produce might serve their client's interests for a time. But as I'm sure we'll discuss today, it can go very seriously wrong for you down the road, or your time is better spent working within the bounds of the law to keep that out of evidence, but produce it in discovery. And I think that that kind of brings me to our next topic, and that is just that it sounds like serving written discovery is all hunky-dory and sounds pretty easy. You ask for some stuff and you get it, but that's not necessarily almost ever the case. And I think in most of my experiences, all we get back in response is a bunch of objections and maybe some basic answers, like maybe we've named the correct defendant, stuff like that. Nothing that's really helpful at all. So I can think in med mal cases where we didn't even get the medical records. And it uh, just, when that happens, I can't help but think it's just to stall and waste time. And it's just incredibly frustrating. I like to draft a letter outlining to opposing counsel, outlining all of the ways that their discovery responses are deficient. And then I usually end up having to pick up the phone and set up a time to discuss that, where you would hope that they would propose some reasonable remedies to where we can get everything and just move on with litigation. Liz, what have been your experiences with handling these kinds of disputes? So my experience with these disputes is to try to address them before we get to that spot where we're in disagreement, meaning when I'm drafting the language of my discovery request, I try to draft it in a way that makes it objection proof. And that's not easy. It's something that I feel like I really have to put a lot of mental energy into crafting good, reasonable questions that are going to advance my client's case and advance the litigation and don't open the door to tons of different objections. Like Erica mentioned, there are certain attorneys that I think are very reasonable when we send them our discovery, and I know that they're going to play fair and, and they're not going to make hay out of one or two words that I didn't perfectly define in the definition section. And then sometimes I'm going to get those attorneys that are going to tell me I'm not entitled to my client's medical records, which is insane. I can't think of anything that my client is more entitled to than their own <laughs> medical records. But sometimes whether, we, whether in the context of litigation or not. Exactly. Right. And so I think that that's really the first step for me is trying to make sure that my discovery is in as good of shape as possible. And sometimes that requires me to look up local rules, checking to see if there are any standard sets of discovery. I'll tell you in Illinois, they have standard interrogatories for medical malpractice cases, for motor vehicle cases. And and I think that that's always great. Because when I send those standard interrogatories, if I get an objection back, I get to shoot an email that says, you're not objecting to me, you're objecting to the Illinois Supreme Court, so who are you (laughs) fighting with here? But 
even after my discovery has been drafted, I think it's in good shape, I send it out and I still get tons of objections in response. Like you said, Elizabeth, the next step is to send a good faith letter. And in that good faith letter, I try really hard to see where their objection is coming from and address each objection individually. I really follow an easy format. That way, if it does end up going in front of a judge, the judge can take a look at my letter and see very easily, this is what I have requested. These are the objections. These are all the reasons why your objections are unfounded, or maybe they are. Maybe there is some basis for them. And let me amend my request in a way to get around that objection. And, And I'm trying to work with you. And so I try to send a very detailed letter laying out my arguments. And typically, I'll send that out. If I don't get a response, I will then file a motion to compel, which I'm sure you're going to cover in a second here. But what I have found is pretty effective is after sending the letter and laying out my position, it's just picking up the phone and calling opposing counsel. There is so much more that can be worked out that can be compromised when you have an actual conversation instead of just firing off emails or letters. And I've found that those have been very effective. Most attorneys, in my experience, are very reasonable people, and they don't want to waste their client's time, and and hopefully they don't want to waste their own time. And so we can try to work out discovery issues that way. And then if later down the road something comes up where I see that Maybe you fought me on this before, but because we've taken this deposition, I'm pretty sure I'm entitled to this. That can come up later. Have you all ever encountered a situation, and to give some context for our listeners, you know, we represent plaintiffs, as we said before, so we represent individuals. And a lot of times on the other side of our cases are larger companies or corporations or hospitals, but as a whole, it's kind of like a big... What, what kind of feels like a big nameless entity. And sometimes the attorney on the other side during a discovery dispute will will kind of blame the client, the corporate client, for not abiding by what they personally feel is a reasonable discovery request. And I'm just curious if you've all ever had uh, the situation that, that I've encountered, the other attorney actually called me and said, I just want to give you a heads up. I understand what you're requesting, but my client just is making me file this motion to compel. So I'm going to file this motion to compel and, and, you know, hopefully we won't have to take it up with the court, but maybe we will. And they just keep deferring to their client being mad about it. I've never worked on the other side, like Erica and Liz, but have you ever encountered that? And what do you think about it? Is, is that just how it goes? I'm going to answer this question a little counterintuitively. The answer is based on your relationship with the opposing counsel. I have repeatedly heard from the same opposing counsel with a different client every time the same argument about my client tells me, you know, I I have to do this. I don't want to file this motion, but, you know, I have to. And that's it's like a lawyer personality type. They don't take responsibility for those things. And I hear the same runaround each time. And that is so frustrating. However, the other side of that coin is in regard to counsel that I know well, I trust them, I don't get that runaround from them. I genuinely believe for our entire profession, whether plaintiffs or defendants, you need to 
very much take responsibility for the way you are conducting litigation. Take responsibility for the decisions you make in litigation and build enough rapport with your client that you get to make those decisions and that they trust you. I hear that all the time and and I don't stand for it. There's many different ways I deal with that. Sometimes it's shame, depending on who it is. But other times I just, I realize that my time is going to be wasted. I'm going to spin my wheels. I just say, file your motion, let's notice it up. And I don't talk to them again about it. And I'm not saying that to be disagreeable. I just don't want to waste my time. So if the, if we have to talk to the judge about it, let's talk to the judge. If I have to notice a custodian of records deposition and ask your actual client who is searching for the documents exactly what they did to do so, that's fine. I can do that. Or you can advise your client how to search for the documents and find the documents that we're entitled to. I feel like also part of our overall strategy as attorneys, regardless of what side you're on, is you don't want to aggravate the court. You don't want to aggravate the judge. You want to move things along as smoothly as possible. That only benefits you uh, later down the line in that case and all subsequent cases. So I've just, you know, sometimes wonder, is the information getting to the client that this is going to look really ridiculous that we're arguing about such a request that, you know, never is a problem in any other case. Let me share a quick story too. And I'm sure many insurance defense attorneys who are listening will, this will resonate with them. I had a client on the defense side who was a very unsophisticated client when it came to bookkeeping. It was a community sports organization and an electrician that was working on their huge breaker box that controlled their field lights. That breaker box had been flooded like year after year and they went to work on it and the person was extremely seriously injured when he went to work on the box because of the condition it was in. It was a really hard fought case. We had to produce all of the maintenance records, the invoices for maintenance, so the plaintiff's attorneys could have an understanding of the history of the maintenance on the electrical box. And when I talked to our client on the phone about what was requested and what they, you know, it seems seems simple. Produce the invoices for maintenance work for a, you know, large piece of electrical equipment. No big deal, right? They had said like, oh, you know, the person who keeps the books is the treasurer's a volunteer, you know, changes every year or so. The current treasurer doesn't really know where everything's kept. There's a room where we keep some documents. And I was like, okay, I will be out there tomorrow. I literally walked into a closet with a decade worth of like wet old banker's boxes of documents and I oh, had God. to like dig my way through all of these records and figure out, and like all the documents were in there. And like they really were. There was like a receipt that was like copied on a piece of computer paper and like they wrote like paid, check number, you know, like those are the types of documents that I was finding. And those were responsive. And they did give information because that receipt like showed who was paid for the work, the date it was done. And then the plaintiff's attorney could go to that you know, maintenance company or whatever and get their records and ask, you know, what did you do? So it was all responsive. But 
I remember bringing back these like musty banker's boxes to the office and like sitting in a conference room and just going through them for hours and hours and hours and nothing was electronic. And then the partner that I was working with on the case, we then sat down and went through every piece of paper. You know, I broadly said like this could somewhere remotely be responsive. She and I went through every single piece of paper and said, yes, this is responsive. No, it's not. And by and large, you know, the majority majority of it was responsive. But that's one of those times that I keep that memory. So at least I can sympathize when and know when a opposing counsel is, you know, feeding me a line or they really are dealing with a difficult situation based on who their client might be and the sophistication of their client. And Erica, I will chime in as the... Uh, other person who did defense work, although I was only there for, as Amy likes to say, a cup of coffee. <laughs> but it's funny you bring up musty papers. I remember one time a client, defense client, sent in a Ziploc bag full of papers that had been destroyed in a fire. They were all just charred, falling apart. I, I had, If I tried to scan them, they were probably just going to disintegrate in the Xerox, <laughs> so I have no idea how I'm even going to produce these. But I do want to echo what you say about sometimes sympathizing with defense counsel who have particularly difficult clients, and it's something that I keep in mind when working now on the plaintiff side, but I had two particular cases where the defendants were just not interested in participating in the litigation. In their mind, they had paid for insurance. Insurance should be handling everything, including working with the attorney, and that's not how these cases can go forward. Your insurance company isn't going to have like you said, all of those individual records and invoices and things like that, that is something the client has. But in at least one of those two situations where I had really just a difficult time working with the client, one of them called the partner that I worked for to complain about me asking help with answering discovery, that that I genuinely needed their help. So when I had to reach out to the plaintiff's attorney and say, I'm sorry that this is taking me so long, I'm just having a really hard time getting a hold of this guy and, and working with him. That's not a line. I genuinely could not work with this guy. But when I run into this issue with defense counsel where they are reporting to me that they're struggling with a difficult client to you know, get this discovery taken care of, I say, I understand. I, I know what that's like. We'll set a hearing with the court and we'll let the judge decide because your client can't argue with a court order once it's in place. And that is how I leave it so that I continue to maintain a good working relationship with the defense counsel, but I'm still going to advance my client's interest in the end. I could think of past experiences where one of the defense attorneys, after filing a motion to compel, just literally didn't speak to me for three weeks before the hearing. And I was so confident we could get the issue worked out. And even in court, before we went in to see the judge, I tried to talk to this attorney. The attorney wouldn't talk to me. We go into the court. It's a long docket. And immediately the judge looks at the motion and is like, you all can go out in the hallway and work this one out. And I just was like, oh, you know, that was one of those moments where it probably aired more on the side of the attorney really needed to take responsibility for the course of litigation on their end. So we've kind of foreshadowed it at this point, but now I want to talk about motions to compel. And for our non-lawyer listeners, that is basically just asking the court to 
order that the other side produce whatever you've requested or to answer your interrogatories. And because sometimes things just can't get worked out without the court's intervention. And so you have to file a motion and these motions can be pretty lengthy, especially if you're dealing with opposing counsel who is not interested in producing any kind of documents. So it's my approach usually to try to categorize my requests so I don't have, you know, a 50-page motion because, you know, no judge is going to read that generally on a motion to compel. So, Mary, how do you go about drafting these kind of motions? So, as we kind of have all talked about, motions to compel are essentially the last resort, right, when you can't get something worked out with the other side. And most of the time, I feel like I'm on the side of requesting versus responding to motions to compel, which I guess is a good thing because we can, we're agreeable and can get stuff worked out. But whenever I'm requesting documents in a, in the form of a motion or asking the court to write up a court order, Elizabeth, we probably have just learned from the same attorneys at the office because I also try to really narrow down the categories of information that I'm seeking. And I also make a detailed timeline for myself prior to writing the motion of exactly when I requested the documents, how I requested them, what that response was, then what steps did I take up until this point where I'm writing this motion to obtain those documents otherwise, just working it out with counsel. And only after I have narrowed the categories of information I'm requesting and laid out for the court all of the ways that I've tried to obtain the documents. In other words, I'm telling the court I'm not just here to aggravate you. I've really tried my hardest to get this information prior to coming to argue. At that point, I will try to draft the motion as succinctly as possible, obviously add in supporting case law as to why the documents are relevant and why my client has a right to get that discoverable information, depending on the attorney on the other side. At some point, I usually call the other lawyer before I file the motion and say, you know, one last shot (laughs) to give me these documents. And that's just kind of a courtesy as a last attempt. So I'm just not filing motions to compel. And sometimes right before I'm ready to file the motion to compel, I'll give a week-long extension or a week-long opportunity for them to produce the documents because oftentimes they ask for that. And if that's all it takes, then I'm happy to work with counsel and get it done. So have you found that placing that phone call before you file is something that helps? Or do you think that I would be afraid that it would just waste more time and then at the end they just wouldn't give you the documents? I think it's a read of how working with that other attorney has been. Right. I can think of attorneys where I I know that the phone call would not be worth my time. And (laughs) I can think of instances where I know the phone call is worth it because the other attorney presents himself as a little bit disorganized with how, you know, past litigation's gone. And maybe it was just an email that got lost in, in the mix. And that happens. You know, one thing I have learned from all of the attorneys at our office in many different types of examples and forms of examples is that the the, the more you can get along with opposing counsel before filing a motion to compel and vice versa, the better. The second piece that I forgot to mention earlier, Elizabeth, is that proposed orders and discovery disputes are essential. I will draft a proposed order for the court to, to grant that specifically outlines what discovery that I want to be in that order so there 
is absolutely no question whatsoever when we leave the courthouse as to what information is discoverable and was what isn't. That always helps when you have a motion to compel, have a proposed order ready so there are no questions for either side when you leave the courtroom. As far as motions to compel go, the longer I practice, the less time I put into them. <laughs> I hope that I'm not disrespecting the process, but Same. you know, it, if I need to file a motion to compel, I'll say plaintiff is noticing up objections to interrogatory 1, 6, 7, and 14, and then I will, and they're usually the same type of interrogatories, or I would group interrogatories or requests for pr- production together, and then write literally maybe two or three sentences. I might cite a case. I might cite a rule. If it's readily applicable, I'm not going to like spend a half hour researching it, because I find that most often, if I know I'm in the right, it's just getting before the judge and saying, judge, like, they owe us this. You agree. You know, this isn't like a big legal debate or something that's sticky or new to figure out. So it's just a mean to an end to get to the hearing and get that order entered. So I spend less and less time on it. And that goes for those good faith letters as well. I have often started the process of a discovery dispute with picking up the phone and then memorializing the conversation with an email. And that email kind of acts as my written record of the attempts we've tried in all detail. You know, based on our phone conversation today, we discussed, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we came to agreements A, B, and C. Then if I have to file a motion to compel later, I have a written record, even though it's not in the form of long letter, that I've tried to resolve that dispute. I've just realized a lot of that briefing ends up being a waste of my time. Now, the caveat I will give to that is If you know it's a central issue in the case, if it is something new where there is some new discovery dispute, or you know it's going to be an appealable issue, if you have to make your record in the litigation on it, I would take much more time. Or a discovery dispute comes to bite you at trial. But that did happen a couple years ago, and the defense counsel tried to introduce a letter that, if I'm correct, I think the defendant doctor had written Or he had gotten a letter from the medical board that they felt in some way vindicated, you know, what he did in this particular medical situation. But they didn't produce it to us in discovery. So we were sitting in that trial and we're all grabbing our discovery objections and looking back at that discovery dispute and arguing before the judge, judge, they can't use this letter in evidence because we asked for it. They didn't object. Or they did object and they objected falsely and purposefully held it back from us so they could, you know, have this letter at trial saying, oh, the medical board said it was okay. And that really backfired and they didn't get to use it. And had they disclosed it earlier in litigation when they should have disclosed it, they probably would have been able to use it at trial and it wouldn't have been great for us. So that's an example of kind of when those things go wrong. So you got to know if the issue is central to your case or if it's a run-of-the-mill discovery dispute. So the only thing that I would like to add to this discussion about what to include in a motion to compel, Mary, I agree 100% with you about building a timeline about 
collecting all of the documents to prove to the court that I have jumped through every hoop possible to avoid dragging this to your bench because every uh, every judicial panel I've ever watched for a CLE, judges always say the number one thing they hate are discovery disputes. It's always the number one thing that they dislike having to deal with the most. So I 100% agree, build that timeline, show that you have done your due diligence in trying to get these records. But Erica, I do also agree with you that when it comes to actually arguing for what the law is or what the rule is, what have you, the judges know. They're they're well-versed in these topics. It doesn't need to be a fully briefed 15-page motion on what each case says about discovery disputes. So it, keep it brief there. The only caveat I would have for my motions to compel are if you have a particularly complicated case, and I'm in particular thinking of some of our medical malpractice cases that are not, you know, a run-of-the-mill bowel injury or something. We have some really highly technical med mal cases in this office where the medicine and the science is difficult to wrap your head around. Or sometimes we are asking for a document that oftentimes the court is not familiar with. And the first thing that comes to my mind in that respect are audit trails. And so anyone who's not familiar with an audit trail Oftentimes, hospitals will have electronic systems in place whereby whenever someone is in the patient chart, they are keeping track of it. So you can see when exactly a doctor entered the patient's chart and when they exited. When did this nurse come and see this patient? It basically builds a timeline, has timestamps, and it's not something that we often get immediately in discovery. We have to specifically request it. And I remember I was at a seminar a couple years ago and we were talking to judges and none of them had ever heard of audit trails and and so this was my opportunity to try to educate them and I think that if you have either a complicated case or you're asking for a lesser known piece of evidence that is relevant to your case your motion to compel your written motion is important to educate the judge. So that's the only thing I like to make sure I include in my motions is just some sort of introductory paragraph so the judge understands this is the type of case we're fighting about and I think it gives them a better framework for understanding why what I'm asking for is relevant and why I deserve to get it in discovery. I think that that's really important and it gives the judge an idea of why you need the documents, especially in more of our technical med mal cases, where I think that the stuff can be pretty sophisticated and knowing what happened in the case kind of gives a background to why we need certain documents produced. But I'm interested, Erica, what kind of strategies do you use when arguing these kinds of motions, especially when they can be lengthier? And Do you go point by point or how does that work for you? I probably approach motions to compel the same way I do any motion. And that is always by having information and knowing about who your judge is. If it's not someone you've practiced in front of before, I'd encourage you to ask other attorneys or contact whatever listservs you're on to get a feeling for the best way to argue in front of him or her. I do have bullet points. I try to keep the issues as succinct as possible. And Liz made a great point about really educating your judge about what your case is about and why it's important. So they have a framework for how what you're asking for fits into it. So I think it's always good, especially if it's your motion, to start by explaining 
your case and getting the judge oriented. And then as succinctly as possible, stating what you need, why you need it, and why you get it. Whether that's case law, a rule, a common sense argument, and then really be on your feet to respond to the defense's argument and also whatever holdups the judge has or helping them understand and work through whatever issues they may have with ordering production of those documents. I recently had an experience where I took notes. I tried to get crystal clear orders from what should be in the order once it was all decided. And it was a remote hearing. So we didn't have the opportunity to get together after we were done arguing to draft the order together. So I put together an order of what I thought was reflective of what happened at the hearing and opposing counsel. What was reflective of what happened at the hearing. Exactly. Yes. And the judge told me to take notes because it was my motion. So I took detailed notes and I confirmed what the orders would be on each point. And I sent my proposed order to opposing counsel And I got a call and they were not willing to agree to a single point of my order. And uh, that was pretty frustrating because I took notes and I know that that's what happened in that hearing. We were able to work it out pretty amicably, but I was prepared to have to go back and re-notice the hearing and have to do it all over again. But I'm just curious, especially with the hearings being remote, um, Liz, do you have any kind of strategies for how you handle this or kind of avoid a situation like that? So I can't think of any strategies beyond what you did in this hearing. I mean, you took written notes. It's not like you were trying to just go back a week later and and remember it off the top of your head. You did, you sent it to opposing counsel. It sounds like he didn't get the result he wanted and he was playing some games. My advice there is just that's a story to remember about this particular attorney and you keep it in mind for when you have future cases with them. Now, Elizabeth, we have tried our best in this podcast to be as honest, forthcoming, and vulnerable with our listeners so they really understand what we are about and the true (laughs) practice of law. You told us this story before we started recording, (laughs) and I want our listeners to know that this opposing counsel was gaslighting you and then admitted to you after you had secured his agreement on everything uh, that you truthfully had written in the order that he listens to the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Uh, I wasn't going to put that on the record, but that is uh, what happened. So I changed my whole opinion. He sounds like a reasonable dude. (laughs) Right? It works. He's still learning. He's learning. We have a fine working relationship, but I, I don't know. We were in different hearings that day, apparently. Elizabeth and Liz, I know that you two were talking about less than amicable conversations with opposing counsel on what was said and not said in in the courtroom at a discovery hearing. I had a case about maybe a year, year and a half ago, and the defendant noticed up a hearing to take up every single item that I listed on a corporate rep depot notice. And it's a little bit different than, you know, a motion to compel. But generally, she was upset with the information that I was requesting, the document production I was requesting. 
it was a really, really small town and a small courtroom. And I actually had my mom drive with me because why not? And she gets up really early in the morning and so do I. So we just had a little morning out of it. I was like, mom, we'll be in and out of the courtroom in about 30 minutes. You can just walk around the little town square and then we can have lunch or something. And I was in the courtroom for about two and a half hours going over every single word in the corporate rep notice and how it's defined. And, you know, can we use this word instead of this word? And I know even after listening to your experiences in this podcast that I didn't handle that situation in the same way I would today because I just, I was so aggravated because I felt like this attorney was just trying to wear me down thinking that I wouldn't have the, you know, the wherewithal to stand up in a courtroom for two and a half hours arguing about, you know, Webster's dictionary definitions of, of words, but I did. And I just fought every single thing. And I think it was just on principle of how, how that litigation had been going. But, you know, now I'm listening to how you all deal with discovery type disputes. And I'm just maybe thinking I could have gotten back those two and a half hours of my life. At least two and a quarter. Right. (laughs) That's right. You know what, though? You know what, Mary? I I think if you do want to try to find a silver lining in this, what I bet resulted from that two and a half hour meeting with opposing counsel who I guess wants to play hide the ball for the entire litigation and meeting with the judge is that you probably came out of that looking like a very reasonable, very professional attorney. In my experience, judges remember attorneys that they do not like, and but they also remember attorneys that they do like. And if you go into a hearing and you are difficult and you are being unreasonable and you are making this litigation harder than it really needs to be, a judge is going to remember that about you. And so I'm sure, uh, I, I bet money on it, that that judge remembers you as a reasonable, calm, level-headed person and your opposing counsel as uh, less than. Yeah, the judge did tell me that I did a great job throughout the case when it got resolved. See, she was as happy as you were to get it resolved. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about answering discovery. So I think at least on the plaintiff's side, answering discovery is a lot easier for us in most cases. And it's a lot more defined what's discoverable on our end and what's not. And at least in my experience, I'm rarely involved in discovery disputes on our end. Mary, how do you handle answering discovery when it's clear that opposing counsel thinks they're just entitled to know every detail of our client's life just because they filed a lawsuit? There are some instances where I'll see requests that I just know are way too invasive and and call for incredibly personal information that in no way relates to the litigation, the injuries, the claims being made at all. And in those times, if it has gotten to a point where there is a motion to compel, those are motions that I'll, I'll come out winning those because it's so obvious that a line has been crossed. And I also want opposing counsel to know that there's a line, but I'm really going to be as productive and as reasonable as I can be with them in producing information. So, you know, are they going to get pages and pages of my clients' text messages and emails? And are they going to have to list off all of the classmates that my student knows that they had injuries after a certain date or something? No, we don't have to take 50 depositions and get addresses and phone numbers for 50 people. The biggest fight I've been having in discovery regarding 
our responses, plaintiffs' responses, has been about social media. I keep getting the same requests basically asking for us to download our client's entire Facebook profile, entire Instagram, entire Twitter, and they give these instructions on how to do it. And I respond, I am under absolutely no obligation to give you the entirety of my client's online profiles. And I remember one time I I was on a phone call with a defense counsel, and in this particular case, our client had suffered a pretty terrible disfigurement as a result of what we alleged was their client's negligence. And he said something, his explanation for why he was entitled to everything and every photo that this woman had posted was, you know, she might have a picture of her smiling at a, a grandchild's event. And I paused, and it was probably a bit of an awkwardly long pause because my response was, are you really going to tell a judge that you're entitled to everything because my client's, what, not allowed to smile anymore? She's not allowed to live her life and, and do the best because she's disfigured now. And I think in that moment he was so ashamed of his request that he backed off and said, okay, fine, can you just... Pull, pull the posts and messages that are pertinent to the litigation have to do with the injury. And I said, yes, absolutely, I can do that for you. And, and we were able to resolve it that way. But this phenomenon of defendants being entitled to everything that my client posted, and vice versa, I'm not entitled to every single thing that a defendant has posted. That is something that I have found myself fighting more and more and more as I get more cases. So to wrap up, let's talk about everyone's best discovery tip, the one that you always go back to and the one you utilize the most in cases. So Erica, let's hear yours. My best discovery tip or tool, if you will, is to, after you do initial written discovery, send requests for admissions. They're available in federal court and as far as I know, every state court I've practiced in. Defendants are required under certain penalties or the opposing party is required under certain penalties to answer those and admit or deny them. It's a much more forceful way to get the answer you need to certain facts in the case so you know exactly what is in dispute, especially thinking about a clear liability case, you can wrap up all your liability in your request for admission. I think that's the strongest discovery tool we have in litigation. And also keep in mind, draft them in a way that you can read them out loud to a jury without them being too cumbersome. If you are talking about a vehicle, don't list the VIN number (laughs) in the request for admission. It's going to take you forever to read it at trial. I am sharing that from experience. (laughs) Liz, you have one? I do. And so my discovery tip is that when you are drafting your discovery, Say it out loud and imagine yourself having to argue in front of a judge about why what you have written and what you have requested, why it is relevant, why it is important, why you deserve it. And the reason that is my discovery tip is because when I was a brand new attorney, I drafted some discovery, gave it to my managing partner, and he came back into my office after reading it, and he made me argue for why I needed each thing I wrote and about half of them. I could not come up with a good argument. He said, if you can't come up with an argument now, you're not going to magically come up with one in front of a judge, cut everything that you 
can't defend. So that's my my tip. Mary, what's yours? Biggest discovery tip is just pick your battles. You know, not every single discovery request requires a two and a half hour hearing. So pick your battles and try to work things out the best that you can with the other attorneys because it's only going to benefit you in that case and in other cases. Wow, we're all learning from past mistakes. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for our discussion on written discovery and motions to compel. I know that I learned a lot and I hope you all were able to take away something useful from our conversation as well. So as always, if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. So shoot us an email at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks again and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.